Greetings, everyone. We are the Dynamic Duo Podcast, where we sit down with like-minded professionals and visit with them about their specialty and the services they provide in hopes to spread awareness so uh, patients and other professionals have a better understanding of uh, different professionals and their specialties. And today we have Dr. Kathy Borkart, who is a neuropsychologist, and we're excited to have her on the show. Uh, so without further ado, Dr. Kathy, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm excited to participate in your series. Awesome. So I guess we'll start out by maybe just having you give us a little introduction and background of where you came from and kind of how you started and and then also where you received your training and education. Sure. Um, I am a neuropsychologist, which is a subspecialty in the field of clinical psychology. Uh, my interest started uh, actually during graduate school. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology and um, then went on for a master's in clinical, actually it was counseling psychology from Loyola University, and uh, liked the field so much that I thought um, to pursue the ultimate goal, which would be the doctorate, and so I attended the Illinois School of Professional Psychology in uh, Chicago and earned my doctorate in clinical psychology there with the specialty in behavioral medicine and neuropsychology. My interest in neuropsychology came in pretty much um, on the ground level, um, started with uh, some of the classes I took and was fascinated by the relationships between the actual structure of the brain and the function of the brain. And that is really what um, neuropsychology is. It's a, it's a profession within the field of clinical psychology focusing on the applied brain behavior, brain emotion, brain social, um, biosocial, really, um, relationships and how that impacts individuals in their um, everyday living. That's, that's great. Yeah, unfortunately, you're close to us. Some of the other people that we've had on our show are not local, so we haven't been able to collaborate, but we've personally been able to collaborate with um, certain patients with you, which has been great. Um, do, you, do you have a specific kind of specialty in the area of neuropsychology? No. Um, usually, most of us are generalists, uh, which means that, and in my case, I evaluate and treat people across all ages, um, whether, you know, there's, there's pediatric, there's geriatric, um, there's also um, the, the adult population. And um, I, I focus, I would say 50% of my practice works with children and identifying their learning needs um, or the effects of surgeries or some of their medical conditions on their academic functioning as well as on their social functioning. Um, moving on to adults, um, and I, people are and refer to me for um, head injuries or if they've had strokes or um, cancer um, are some of the uh, types of injuries uh, or brain anomalies that I treat, and I evaluate them and, and, and assist them with reintegrating into the type of life that they preferred. And with the geriatric population, I evaluate for dementia or to rule out whether there might be another medical condition or emotional condition that is affecting the cognitive functioning. So I do uh, treat and evaluate people across the whole age span. 
Okay, great. Yeah, that is amazing, and it seems like that would encompass a lot of different diagnoses, a lot of different conditions, a lot of different, I don't know, a lot of different areas of concern. So I'm guessing the training to get to where you are has been fairly expensive. Could you give us a little insight on maybe how long it took and what are some of the, the different levels as you progressed in your professional development? Sure. Good question. Um, with uh, academically, there is the degree program for, to become a doctoral um, candidate to sit for the licensing exam. The, um, it takes about four to six years to actually complete a doctoral program in clinical psychology that includes practicums and internships and postdoc training in an area of interest, and mine happened to be in uh, neuropsychology and behavioral medicine. And um, so from there, my dissertation was based on a neuropsychology concept. Um, and in fact, I studied uh, adults that were working at Ray Graham that were intellectually impaired, and I wanted to see whether there was a particular subtest or group of subtests that could predict uh, employment outcome. And from there, I uh, worked in various hospital settings, built connections with uh, many medical professionals so that I could evaluate uh, people when they had a medical condition or an anomaly um, relating to their brain functioning. Uh, I performed um, some pre-surgical evaluations to see if people were mentally or cognitively fit to be able to have implants, whether it would be for cardiac surgery or bariatric surgery or uh, for spinal cord pain types of relationships. And then um, progress from there to uh, build connections with the Rehab Institute of Chicago and um, neurologists in DuPage County and Cook County, Will County, so that when they had a patient who needed an evaluation or uh, adjustment to their uh, brain injury or acquired brain injury, um, I would receive those referrals. My interest in children came to be important to me because I had a few of my children developed um, learning disabilities or um, autism spectrum or ADHD conditions. And when I needed to obtain services within their school district, I found it difficult to know how to do that, but also to obtain the needed services just outright. And so I attended some training on child advocacy within school systems uh, for learning disabilities and developing IEPs and Section 504 plans and became very knowledgeable about what needed to be in my reports, what wording need, needed to be there in order to help other parents and children obtain needed and proper academic services for their children. Okay, yeah, that's great. So you had kind of a personal personal touch on that as well. Yes. Um, when you're looking, I guess, when you see people or they come to your office, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons people seek your um, evaluations, but what would you say would be some of the most kind of typical reasons people might come to your office? And when you do an evaluation with them, um, what kinds of things are included? Kind of how long does it take? Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on your, your testing? Sure. When children are referred to me, it's typically by their primary care physicians or their current therapists, and it is to uh, determine if the child or, or teen may have ADHD 
or an autism spectrum disorder, or learning disability, uh, some sort of cognitive processing disorder perhaps that is negatively impacting them academically or socially, um, sometimes emotionally. And also if those conditions exist to train parents or educate them on how to be their child's best advocate, how to obtain services, needed services in the academic system for these children, uh, also how to better parent them so that the children and teens can be more successful in life. Uh, when um, I receive adults or geriatric population, usually the referral question is, you know, for, for the acquired brain injuries, for example, if someone has had a car accident or um, work-related accident that resulted in a, a traumatic brain injury, it's, it's to see the, the impact of the brain injury, are there deficits, um, how much, how strong those deficits are, and what we can do to retrain the brain or, or what kind of cognitive rehabilitation we can engage in in order to try to make that person as close to whole as possible. Um, and also to help the families adjust to any um, deficits that are there. It, it takes a while to recover from some of these. And so um, how, to, how to manage some of these symptoms. And, and for the geriatric evaluations, the, the questions often are, you know, is there a dementia that's coming in? What type of dementia? Um, it, are these multi-infarct dementias? Is this Alzheimer's? And it kind of helps with uh, treatment planning, medication planning for the referring physicians. Um, a typical neuropsychological evaluation lasts about, um, in total, face-to-face uh, -face is anywhere between four and six hours typically. What is covered, the way I do it, is I typically meet with either the patient or if the patient is a child or a teen, I also meet with the parents first and I get a detailed clinical history. Uh, it helps me best determine what sorts of assessment tools to use. Then um, I meet face-to-face -face for about two, two hour sessions is typical. And um, I include intellectual testing. There's many subtests within an IQ test and what I like to see is the relationship amongst the subtests to each other because that signals how the brain, different areas of the brain or the different pathways of the brain are interacting with each other. Um, I also include some academic testing uh, if, if that is appropriate, uh, reading, writing, arithmetic across um, a number of modalities, whether it's written, orally. Um, I look at learning and memory visual and auditory. There's questionnaires that family members and the, the patients complete. I look at sensory processing and then there's some questionnaires for secondary information providers. So for children it might be teachers. Um, it's important to include the school, some personnel from the school in order to get an idea of how and if symptoms are prevailing at the school too. Um, or it could be an employer, uh, it could be uh, other family members, so that the picture that is developed is comprehensive and it looks at emotional, behavioral, cognitive, social, um, avocational functioning to look at the person as a whole and to see what treatment planning um, is then appropriate as a consequence of the outcome of the testing. 
so comprehensive. And I know seeing the reports from neuropsychologists is just amazing. All the information that you include um, in your report. Um, is the testing usually done with in just one day or do you kind of spread that out over a few days or just depends on the patient? I prefer to spread it out over two days. I think it's 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 quite taxing. It, it, I mean, it can be taxing, and so um, I want to get the best measure of an individual's functioning. So I suggest two days. Sometimes we do go over okay. into a third day if a if a patient based based on the patient's pace. But I include um, assessments for attention, concentration, speech, and language. Um, visual spatial processing, uh, language processing, sensory processing, memory, um, motor functioning, visual motor functioning, social, behavioral, and emotional, and social functioning. Those are typically the areas um, in higher or order reasoning, which is um, frontal lobe executive functions. Um, as much information as I can get, I, I will assess for. So that is typically what is included in the evaluation. The report is also that I write um, after interpreting um, also includes those sections so that, um, you know, it's, it's laid out kind of like um, an anatomy, you know, is, is laid out from, from head to toe. You know, if people are getting a whole body assessment, you know, they're going to have different sections of anatomy that are, are um, addressed. And, and that's the way neuropsychology works. Yeah, it is amazing how thorough it is, like you were mentioning. And I think you had mentioned earlier with 504 or Section 504 plans and IEPs, I would think the information that you acquire through your testing would be so valuable to school systems because I feel like the the child, you, you want to be able to find the best accommodations or the best system, the best environment to help them. And, you know, sometimes they will be there for the accommodations will be there for more long-term, others more short-term, but you want to be able to help them succeed the best you can in school. And I think the information that you provide would be so extremely helpful. And that that's awesome that you even sought out some more training and understand the language and how to communicate. Because as we all know, communication is such an important part, especially with teachers, because they you know, have only certain things that they can provide. And then through the suggestions that you provide, I think, you know, communication and finding the best overall scenario is so important for kids. Ryan, what you said is very true. I think that something I learned as a parent is that there there does have to be certain wording that it has to be a component within the reports and the recommendations. There has to be tie-ins between the recommendations and the findings of a report or, or legally, the school systems don't have to acknowledge or even consider those recommendations when they are meeting as a team to, to plan for a child's IEP or a 504 plan. And yeah, it, it, it is quite important to, to make those tie-ins and to use the proper wording um, because most parents don't know that that is, that is a requirement. So sometimes if you have an evaluation by someone who doesn't understand that, you can walk in with a beautiful neuropsychological report. But if those key legal components that address and um, force for consideration the needs of the child, if that's not part of the report, it won't be addressed. And it is something I learned as a parent, and it is something that I try to impart to each one of my parents to help them be better advocates for their children. And I hope many people hear this and understand that, too, because that is, I mean, otherwise, like you said, if you have a beautiful report, beautiful testing, but ultimately ends up with no change in result or no no help, then what good does it ultimately do? And that's And then nobody wins. 
exactly. I want to touch too, and, and I know executive functioning and ADHD are a couple of terms that we hear often in our profession because usually vision struggles can either mask or be, you know, in association with some of these things. I know if there's a vision component for us, we can help with that. But if there's an underlying uh, executive functioning struggle or ADHD, that's something that we don't address. But what are some of the typical, I guess I know this is kind of a a loaded question, but typical things that you use or strategies or, or maybe even medication to address ADHD or executive functioning struggles? Yeah, ADHD is, um, we're finding is, is highly genetic. Um, it's very common. Um, many times when I see a child, then I, I, I evaluate a child and diagnose the child with ADHD because they meet the criteria. I will also look at the parents and say, you know, is, who, is there anyone else in your family? And have you considered it for yourselves? It, it, it is such a strong component, that hereditary piece that, um, you know, I, I try to educate the whole family, not just addressing the child. But um, the studies have shown the best outcome for ADHD is a combination and treatment between behavioral uh, cognitive therapy as well as medication. And what I have also found in my experience and in collaborating with people like you and with uh, speech and language pathologists is that many people with ADHD also have a, a slower auditory processing speed. Mm -hmm. And so they miss out on lectures or on conversations. They miss some key components. And it's not necessarily due to inattention, but it could be due to distractibility. Um, mm -hmm. Same thing with reading comprehension. Many people with ADHD have to read and reread. Um, or when they write, they scratch off or they uh, have to retype because it's, it's difficult sometimes to process language efficiently. When it comes to visual processing, there's visual inattention. Um, there, and, and you know, you know from how you practice, there can be some um, co-occurring divergent and convergency issues that are very common with ADHD. And so in treating someone with ADHD, you need to look at all possible components for the best possible outcome. And studies show that when you include all these complementary treatments together, um, it can be quite helpful and effective for the individual. Yeah, I would agree totally on that. I mean, the patients that we see, usually there's not just one issue, even though maybe uh, one issue is manifested more than others. And when you have more professionals that work together for the same goal, we found that patients are be able to get an outcome that's desirable a lot quicker and ultimately that's what we want overall so yeah we've really appreciated visiting with you here and just working together with you overall same here and what other speaking of that with kind of the multidisciplinary approach what um, other professionals um, would you say you commonly collaborate with um i do work with a, a child's pediatrician um any referring physician for the adults and the, uh, the geriatric population, um, when I look at adults who have um, brain injuries, oftentimes there is a visual processing component. Sometimes that's the only part of the brain, uh, those pathways having to do with visual processing and um, visual spatial relations is the only thing. Those, those areas are the only things that, that are affected uh, by a brain injury, at least those are the only ones that present themselves. And so I think it's real important to develop relationships with any type of specialty that um, can help any of my patients with their particular deficits, whether it is a vision 
therapy specialist, whether it's a speech and language specialist, a physiatrist who directs rehabilitation for anybody who has a brain injury. Um, I work a lot with neurosurgeons, uh, with uh, neurologists, uh, primary care physicians, as I mentioned before, speech and language therapists as well. So we can actually coordinate sometimes and not um, over so that we don't step on each other's toes or sometimes interfere with the treatment that someone else is doing. I Right now I work um, sometimes with the Naperville Senior Center in uh, their daycare. They have adult daycare there and they will refer people to me because they may think sometimes someone who's been diagnosed with dementia may perhaps not have dementia and so they're not receiving maybe the best appropriate care. So I will evaluate them and then work with their primary care physicians on um, an alternate treatment plan or medication plan. Um, sometimes when I uh, evaluate someone and they've had a brain tumor and I, they come back a year later and I reevaluate them and I can see signs that suggest maybe the tumor's returning. And in fact, I have caught a couple people early so that they can go back to their neurologist or oncologist and, and, and I've talked to them and said, hey, you know what, let's do another MRI, let's see, because they're presenting with some symptoms showing some alteration in their functioning and, and in fact, their tumors have returned. So I think it's real important that there's a team that I collaborate with on almost every individual if possible because again, that communication is best for the patient. Man, that is so amazing. I can completely understand why this field would fascinate you. It encompasses so many things, and you can impact so many people, and and even you know prevent some things and help. That just is is cool. I've definitely learned a lot just from visiting with you. Uh, one thing I want to ask you too: Is there anybody that comes to see you that has maybe misconceptions or misunderstandings of what? either the service you provide or the care that you provide, or they say to you, man, I didn't know that you were going to tell me about this. You know, is there something that you kind of, as a common theme, you know, uh, that you see or hear? Um, usually my, I work with my referring sources so that they understand what I do so that they can best describe to patients so that there isn't too many miscommunications. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I've sat down with DuPage Medical Group and some of the other medical groups around here and, and actually had seminars with them about what I do and don't do. But sometimes when people come to me and have not had any of um, some of this preparation work, if you will, um, sometimes people think that I'm going to be doing a physical exam, which there is really no laying on of my hands <laughs> on anybody. <laughs> you know, it's For a, sure. a test table, we, we do tasks, and that's the way I, I explain it. Um, most I explain that most people find it fascinating. Um, I, I don't, they're not being sent to me because somebody is suspecting a mental health issue or that it's all in their head, so to speak. Well, you know, it literally is in their brain, which is in their head, but it's not in the metaphorical way that, you know, uh, people are not being believed. Um, they're coming to me because they are being believed. And uh, I'm, I'm there to see the impact of whatever event may be happening on their physical brain and how that's affecting um, their functioning. So if there's any misconception, it's it's those minor ones. And sometimes people think, oh, the cost is very prohibitive. But, but insurance covers 
my my uh, services, whether it's the evaluation or the treatment. Um, sometimes as a consequence of my treatment, I offer cognitive retraining, which is a set of exercises that it, it, it's PT for the brain, really. There's a set of uh, exercises that we do to try to rebuild some connections or build some alternate pathways to get the brain working again. And um, that is also covered by insurance. Uh, I'm a provider for um, several insurance panels, and um, most people don't have to have a lot of out-of-pocket cost to them for a neuropsychological evaluation outside of their deductible and regular co-pays. So it is not as expensive as people think. That's good. That was going to be probably my next question. My anticipation is people would think that the, the testing, because it's so long and extensive, that it's going to cost them a lot of money. But that is great to hear that insurance companies are, are uh, able to cover some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So they actually cover they cover all of it except for the patient co-pays and, and deductibles. There's mental health parity laws out there, Ryan, and, and basically, you, you know, whatever service uh, type of coverage is provided for uh, under a medical insurance must be provided with mental health insurance for most organizations. And so it, it is, it's, it's regular insurance that covers us. That's great. Well, you've certainly given us a lot of good information, um, things that we didn't know before talking with you, which is great. Um, But do you have any kind of favorites as far as resources that maybe other professionals could rely on or just as far as talking with patients just to help kind of spread the word or explain a little bit where a neuropsych evaluation might be appropriate? Uh, Yes, there are... If, if depending on the conditions, if people um, are concerned about a child having ADHD or they have a family member with dementia or they're really um, concerned about the effects of a brain injury, uh, you can go to any of the websites for those national organizations. Um, the ADHD, there's CHAD, which uh, t- promotes a, a good evaluation and promotes neuropsychology as the best type of an evaluation for someone with ADHD. Um, if a child, if, if an adult uh, has dementia, early dementia, or um, late onset dementia, usually there's a referral from the uh, Alzheimer's uh, websites or the dementia, any sort of dementia research websites that again promote neuropsychology and explain the role of psychologists in the proper evaluation and care for individuals who might be suffering from those symptoms. So I I would say that um, looking at a particular medical condition and going on the websites and and gathering research from those particular organizations that uh, have been formed to address those particular conditions or perhaps going to the NIH websites. Um, I have a website, um, it's kathyborkart.com, that uh, does explain what neuropsychology is, what my services are, um, what should be as part of a component of a neuro- neuropsychological examination that might also be helpful. Um, but yeah, that, I think those would probably all be good sources and resources. Okay, great. Thank you. So yeah, I guess basically stick to the, the national organizations or yeah, we'll definitely include your website and the link on this podcast so people can check that out and it's very helpful for sure. Um, I think what we're going to do, we're going to wrap it up from here and just want to thank you one more time, Dr. Kathy Borkart, for visiting with us and uh, you know sharing your knowledge and we're hoping that a lot of people will listen to this and it'll clear some things up overall. Um, and yeah, once again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Lindsay and Ryan. It's been a pleasure on my end as well. Great. Thank you.
Thank you so much for your time and until next time. Mm -hmm.